Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Oh, thanks so much for joining us here at episode 76 with Jason Nazar. He has such a wealth of wisdom coming from his roles in entrepreneurship and writing tons of articles and Inc. and Forbes and Business Insider, and he's sharing all those tidbits with us here today. So you're going to learn, one, two big mistakes that are stopping you from advancing in your career, two, guidance in your search for finding and keeping mentors, and three, two transformational questions you should ask yourself every day. So if you want to check out the show notes, the transcripts, the links to items mentioned, you'll find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep76. So here's Jason's story. Jason Nazar is one of the most active tech entrepreneurs and investors in Southern California and is a popular contributor for Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Inc., and Business Insider. He's the founder and CEO of Comparably, an online platform that makes workplace compensation and culture dramatically more transparent. Prior to Comparably, he founded DocStock, the largest small business content site with over 50 million members before he sold it to Intuit in 2013 for a reported $50 million. Named one of the most admired CEOs by the Los Angeles Business Journal, Jason's currently entrepreneur in residence for the city of Los Angeles, appointed by our Mayor Garcetti. Thanks to Jason for sharing his time with us and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. It's a trying time that challenges all of our basic assumptions. However, one thing that brings us all together is our common humanity. Now more than ever, teams must come together and work together to solve big challenges. And Trello is here to help. Trello, part of Atlassian's collaborative suite, is an app with an easy-to-understand visual format plus tons of features that make working with your team functional and just plain fun. Teams of all shapes and sizes and companies like Google, Fender, and even Costco all use Trello to collaborate and get work done. With Trello, you can work with your team wherever you are, whether it's at home or in an office. No matter what device you're using, computer, tablet, or phone, Trello syncs across all of them, so you can stay up to date on all the things your team cares about. Keep your workflow going from wherever you are with Trello. Try Trello for free and learn more at Trello.com. That's T-R-E-L-L-O dot com. Trello.com. Here's Jason. Jason, thanks so much for being here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, I just have to know first things first about your experience as a stage hypnotist. How did that come about? How much experience did you have? And is hypnosis for real? Hypnosis is definitely for real. It may not be exactly what people think it is. It's not mind control, but it's persuasion. And I've always been fascinated by persuasion. I write and speak about it a lot. And I read a book in high school about hypnosis. And then when I was 18 in college, I saw a stage hypnosis show for the first time. And I just really wanted to understand how it worked because I didn't know why these classmates of mine, you know, were getting up and doing all these crazy things and was obviously there was some real experience. And so when I was graduating college, I started taking seminars and reading more books on hypnosis. And then just casually, some friends asked me if I could do a stage hypnosis show at a fraternity at UCLA. And I said, yes, really having no idea how to do one. (laughs) And it kind of worked. And then I just started doing more of them, you know, when I was 21. And and all I did about 
you know, probably 40 stage hypnosis shows at every major college university across California. It's not something that, you know, I think was my life's ambition, but it was <laughs> a really fascinating life experience. And it taught me a lot about the fundamentals of persuasion. Well, if I may, could you drop one or two or three bullets about those fundamentals picked up from stage hypnosis? Absolutely. So first off, all hypnosis is, is focused attention with a specific intention. Hypnosis is the exact same physiological state as when you're daydreaming, right? So when you're daydreaming, there's maybe stuff going on behind you in the background, people are talking, but you wouldn't necessarily remember what they were saying because you're just, your mind's going somewhere. That's all hypnosis is, except you do it with a specific intention. The reason why stage hypnosis shows work is because you do a lot of qualification and you control the context of the environment. And, and those are two big principles of persuasion. So when I say, you know, you, you control the context, you control the environment. Like you're creating an environment where people are specifically wanting to come to a stage hypnosis show and they're implicitly wanting to follow your directions because they want to be entertained. Mm-hmm. The second thing is that you qualify your audience. It's a numbers game. You know, for me to do a stage hypnosis show successfully, typically I would need about at least 50 people in the audience. A lot of times I had 500. And I start off every show by asking one very important question, which is, who here wants to get a little crazy tonight and have fun? (laughs) And the people that raise their hand are self-selecting into the fact they're implicitly saying, I want to be hypnotized. And so... Then when you start to take them through trance and you do different games, you have their implicit permission to start and later on you get their explicit permission. So that's a really important thing. And then the third principle, which people can definitely use in their careers and is a very strong principle of you know how you help convert people into any product sell, is you impregnate people into a process. You get small commitments up front and then as somebody commits to something more and more and more, they feel more embedded and more pressure to do the large commitments. And that's in essence how a stage hypnosis show works. You control the context, you self-select the audience through a series of questions, and then you get people to make small commitments before you ask them to make larger commitments. And those principles are the same principles I use when I raise you know, tens of millions of dollars in venture capital, when you know I try to promote my products and services. And when I teach people how they can negotiate for better salaries and get promotions in their job. Mm, That's so good. That's so good. And I'm curious about one particular commitment you have right now. You are the entrepreneur in residence for the city of Los Angeles. What does that entail exactly? Eric Garcetti, who's the mayor of Los Angeles, is just a fantastic person, a great mayor. And he really did a lot of outreach to the tech community and wanted to support, you know, businesses in general and especially fast-growing tech companies. And I think he modeled what you see at a lot of venture capital firms where they have this concept of an entrepreneur in residence. And so for the city, what it means is there's two entrepreneur in residence for a given year. It's myself and Eva Ho. And our responsibilities are twofold. One, we are really there to liaison between the city and entrepreneurs all across Los Angeles, so the city office and entrepreneurs all across Los Angeles. And the second is that we're each doing a large project for the year. So in my case, we're going to put on the largest tech job fair in the history of Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. We'll have hundreds of companies. 
we'll have thousands of job seekers. It's going to be in January 2017. And you can go to my blog, jasonnazar.com. There's a link to the job fair. It'll be totally free to attend for job seekers and you can just sign up. And so that's you know what the entrepreneur in residence position entails. Well, that's cool. That's cool. And so you're currently, though, your kind of primary role keeping you busy day in, day out is being the CEO of Comparably. So tell us, what's that business about and a little bit of the ethos associated with um, compensation and culture data becoming more transparent firm by firm? Absolutely. I've been running tech companies for the past decade. I'm 38 now. I started my first tech company when I was coming out of law school in my mid-20s. And, you know, comparably was all about trying to make work more rewarding. So what we do is we make compensation and workplace culture dramatically more transparent. So we help people see how much they should be getting paid. You can see exactly what people like you are getting paid for similar jobs. And you can publicly rate your company. It's anonymous. So your identity is not given up. And the theory is that, you know, our belief and our mission is that, we want to make work more transparent. We want employees to be more empowered. We want you to understand what you should be getting paid, what kind of experience you're having relative to your peers. And that makes it better for everybody. It makes it better for the employees. It makes it better for the companies. And so what we're doing at Comparably is we're really the job monitoring service for you know millions of employees. We monitor the job market for you and tell you about comp culture. And pretty soon we're also going to help people get matched to companies. So we'll have a solution where we can help match candidates and companies around recruiting as well. Interesting. And so what is some of the pieces that you have present in sort of your business technological operation that might be a little bit unique and fresh and different from, say, the pay scale and glass doors of the world? We built this entire product because we tried to be different and better. We felt like there hadn't been a lot of innovation You know, on the compensation side, we have some of the most specific data you're going to find. It's completely free for employees. It's free for employers as well. And you can just get to such a specific level. So you can say, I want to see how much people like me make in a similar sized company and in the same location for the same job title. And I want to break down that data by gender, by ethnicity, by years experience as a candidate, by how much money a company has raised. And so you can apply all these characteristics so you can really, really see what somebody like you in a very similar situation and a very similar background is making so you can really understand your market value. Oh, yeah. On the company rating side, you know, we actually focus more on survey structured data than we do on written reviews. You know, I think Mm -hmm. there are a lot of people out there that have amassed a lot of written reviews, and I think that's valuable. But, you know, if you go to Comparably.com, you can just really see at a glance. Go to Microsoft or LinkedIn or, or Google and, and you can see a whole bunch of snapshots of what people think about their compensation and leadership and their perks and benefits. And you don't have to read a bunch of reviews. You can just look at the data and you can see how it breaks down by department and experience of candidates. So it provides companies a lot more detailed, thorough feedback. And we're not trying to be a place where, you know, disgruntled, angry mm-hmm. employees go just to vent about their company. We really want to provide a platform where it's really fast and easy to leave a review and rating. And it's transparent for your coworkers and prospective employees. But companies also get the benefit of really detailed, thorough feedback that helps them pinpoint specifically where they need to get better as organizations. 
Oh, that's so fascinating. So can you share a couple kinds of insights or themes or patterns that you've already been able to discern and some key transformations that have started to happen as a result? Well, we publish a lot of data. If you go to comparably.com and you go to our blog, you'll see all sorts of studies that we do on the gender pay gap and on negotiations and who's been promoted. We really, you know, just six months in to being a live product, have amassed literally millions and millions of data points. So for example, you know, we broke down the gender pay gap. We had one of the most comprehensive studies of what's going on with the gender pay gap in tech. And there were some really fascinating findings. You know, the, the gender pay gap, for example, is most pronounced with women that are just entering the workforce. So it's right as you come in, it's younger employees that are affected most. And then we'll also break it down by city so we can show the cities where it's most pronounced. You know, for example, Atlanta has one of the largest disparities when it comes to gender pay gap. So these are the kinds of insights on a macro level that, you know, we're able to publish. We're almost like on a weekly basis, either featured in, you know, a Fortune or a Forbes or Business Insider or TechCrunch sharing our compensation and culture data of what's going on in the market. Mm, That's so, so fascinating. Since you probably know about this better than most humans on the planet, I'm just going to ask, with the gender pay gap, you know, people will come out on kind of both sides of that with regard to, you know, 77 cents or on the dollar. And others will say, well, no, no, if we take a look at folks, you know, in the same position, working the same hours with the same credentials, et cetera, it really is quite minor. So what's your take on the extent to which the gender pay gap is just how wide is it? Like when it's like as fair as an apples to apples can be with your data analysis, where does it stand right now in your view? Well, the gender pay gap is 100% real. And I think you see by the figures, one of the things that we try to do is to the point that you're saying, just get really specific. So yeah. for example, in our case, you know, we try to stay focused on the tech industry to start. And one of the things that we do is we triangulate gender pay with departments. So we, we thought it'd be really fascinating to understand, okay, well, how does pay based upon gender breakdown when you add this component of a department. So for example, like if you look at admin roles, you know, customer service roles, you actually see that, you know, in many cases women are getting paid more than men, at least in tech. And as you get to the executive level, there is a gender pay gap, but it's a little bit less pronounced. And even within the context of engineering, there's a gender pay gap, but it's not typically, you know, a full 25% difference. But if you look at roles in marketing or BD or sales, you see that there is a very large gender pay gap that does exist. That is that, you know, difference of women getting paid 75 cents for every male dollar getting paid. And then you also see which cities are kind of the worst culprits of it also. So that's the kind of data that we try to expose. And then we try to also add in, you know, years experience and show that as well, too. So, you know, I think the data that we found definitely corroborates it. But I think what we're trying to do is just make it more specific. Like, where is it? Where is it really most pronounced? Where is it getting better? And those are the kinds of things that I think help make the conversation about the topic more valuable because it's such a raw emotional topic. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons we do what we do is because there's probably two things you care most about work. What you're getting paid, right? So what you're being valued for your contribution and the quality of the experience you're having, right? So what are you getting out of it? What's, what are you able to contribute to society? What are you able to learn as an individual? What are your career advancement opportunities? And it, pay is just such 
a raw emotional topic, especially in the United mm-hmm. States. You know, it's so taboo. That, that's why we started Comparably because you could ask me, you know, and, and you can ask me why I get paid. I'll answer. But, <laughs> you know, we could probably in this podcast talk about the diseases that people in our family are facing and serious emotional challenges we've gone through and ask me really private things and it wouldn't seem that odd. But if I came out and I said, hey, how much money do you make a year, Pete? (laughs) You would really think that I was an asshole. (laughs) And it's because the topic is infused with so much emotion and taboo. And so it's understandable that when there's any class of people, whether it's women or ethnic minorities or anything else that are getting paid less, it's going to be fraught with emotion. And part of what we're trying to do is address that and have great data to explain, hey, here's what's actually going on in the market and here's what you should be getting paid. Okay. Well, excellent. Thank you. And so, well, I'd love to hear, you've also done a whole lot of great writing and interviews and such about in terms of just sort of career perspectives for young professionals. So, it's just so great to have you here. So one in particular, you wrote a Forbes article about fatal mistakes we're making at work. And so I would love to get your take either from that article or some new epiphanies you've had. You know, what are some of the most commonly arising fatal mistakes we're making at work that need to stop? I try to write things that people tend to have strong opinions to, where they either really agree or they really strongly disagree. And so one of the things I say is a big mistake at work is acting like yourself. And what I mean by that is if you're someone that's driven to, if you're ambitious and if you want to move forward in your career, then it's not about the fact that you're not good enough, but wherever we are, right, there's someone else that's done more. And so I've often coached my employees and I say, take your business mentor, whoever your business mentor would be, and act as if, act like that person. How would they conduct themselves in a meeting? How would they communicate? How would they deal with deliverables? How would they write? How would they dress themselves? And act like that person. And the purpose of the exercise is to try behaviors that push us outside our boundaries. We get so comfortable with what we know. And so I think one of the mistakes that people make at work is just kind of being yourself. Like you don't challenge or look at what you're doing and how you could be better And one of the things that the most successful people I've ever met do is they act as if. They act as if they're already financially successful. They act as if they're already confident. They act as if they already know the answers. Now, that needs to be backed up with a strong sense of ethics and hard work and a desire to get better. But that's one of the big mistakes I think people make. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and that reminds me of that little song lyric, which I never really cared for. It's like, I don't want to be anything other than what I've been trying to be lately. I was just like, <laughs> what? what does that even mean? And that sounds like a terrible situation in which you're sort of stuck being in the same zone and not growing. And so I like what you're saying. That's even more kind of contrary to that lyric was like, hey, proactively try to be someone else. See how that goes for you. Yeah, I mean, I think in the context of life, being comfortable in your own skin is a really great, desirable place for us to be. In the context of career advancement, you know, I think being able to try on the attitudes and behaviors and styles of people that have more success than us is very valuable. Mm, So good. Another fatal mistake, perhaps. Uh, So another one I talk about is not making yourself absolutely instrumental to the company. The fact of the matter is, if you want to have job security 
And if you want to put yourself in the position to be able to get promotions and raises, there's one simple way to do it. And the way to do it is make it where if you were not at that company tomorrow, shit would just start to break. <laughs> right? I can look over my team and I can say, well, there are certain people that if they probably didn't show up tomorrow, things would just kind of keep moving along and we could fill that hole. And there are other people that if they didn't show up, we would be in really deep S. Yeah. And those are the people that have the most leverage. They A, have the most job security because if they were gone, the business would suffer. And B, they have to don't realize they could come to me if they said, hey, I need a promotion and I need a raise. They have leverage because they're so critical to the business. And what everyone should do in their career is ask yourself, like, look at what you're doing for your company and saying, how indispensable am I, right? Now, different roles are different if you're a senior exec inherently you're probably more valuable to a company than if you're an entry-level intern. But even within the context that you're in, whether it's an entry-level employee or somebody that works in admin or somebody that works in any department, how critical are you to the goals of that department and relative to your peers that are in similar situations? And if you can put yourself in a position where you're instrumental and indispensable to a company, you have ultimate job security and you have the most amount of leverage to get promotions and raises. That makes complete sense. I've been on the sort of leadership management side of that. And I know, I recognize that there are indeed certain people who are just making it happen and you're just hoping that they're not on vacation at the wrong time. (laughs) (laughs) So, well, now you mentioned being in someone else's skin or pretending that you're like them and what would they do in this circumstance? And so you've written some other pieces associated with getting and keeping mentors. What are some key takeaways to bear in mind there? With mentors, the first most important thing is like anything else in sales, is you have to ask. I gave this example that I went to four years of grad school. I went to, I got a law degree and an MBA, but I was a weird student. I didn't go to class that often. I didn't buy books. I rarely studied but I was constantly networking. And I probably asked no less than 50, five zero people over four years to be my mentor. And it's this weird thing that creates this weird relationship where when you ask somebody to be your mentor, they actually feel indebted to want to go out of their way to help you. And so one is just, you know, don't be bashful about asking people to mentor you. It's something that on the receiving end, it feels really good to get that kind of compliment that somebody cares enough about you and respects and looks up to you enough that they'd want to get your knowledge. Oh, if I may, sorry to jump in, but so you asked 50 people, what was your hit rate in terms of how many of them said, sure. And then they sort of met with you and shared their wisdom and guidance with you. Honestly, 100%. Whoa. I make the joke that there were all these people that were my mentor. And if Right, if they they were probably bumping into each other and talking about this mentee they had and they didn't even know it was the same person. But the flip side of that is it's not a relationship where you can just take, you have to get. And so I was drawing on their wisdom and experience and expertise. And so I knew I needed to contribute something. I wasn't gonna contribute necessarily equal value, but the biggest thing I had to contribute was my time. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I would ask every single person, what can I do to help you out? Is there any project? You know, I would be on the lookout for news articles that I thought might be interesting to them. If there was a connection that I could make that would be valuable, I tried to do it. And so the key thing about, you know, that relationship is even if you're on the receiving end of being the mentee, 
go out of your way to try to provide as much value. And that person will then do the same in turn for you. Mm, That's excellent. And so any other pro tips in terms of having that mentorship relationship being as fruitful as possible? It's easy to ask somebody to be your mentor. It's work to keep up the relationship. And so a mentor is a unique relationship. It's kind of like an advisor to a company. You shouldn't have to rely on that person on a daily or a weekly basis, but you want to be able to call them when you're going through a big life event, whether it's trying to get a job or picking between jobs or trying to figure out how to do something new you haven't done before. And to have the currency to just be able to reach out to somebody, you can't let six months go by and never talk to them and then just ask them for something because then it feels like you are a moocher. Mm -hmm. And so even if it's just dropping a little line to somebody over email or mentioning them on Facebook or Twitter with social these days or trying to do something, you know, just if you ask two or three people to be your mentor, you know, make sure you're communicating with them every other week, even if it's just a quick little text or email, or something over Snapchat that you even share with them. Mm, Lovely, thank you. I was also getting a real kick out of one of your popular articles. Boy, it was like 5 million views plus on 20 things 20-year-olds don't know. And I really enjoyed reading many of those. Could you maybe select a couple of those things that you think that also 30 and 40-year-olds seem to forget? Yeah, so this was a post I wrote on Forbes a couple years ago that really just went insanely viral. 20 things 20-year-olds don't get. Oprah retweeted it. Jack Welsh retweeted it. I was featured on the Today Show. And I think it's universal knowledge. You know, it just, it's probably the most pronounced when you're at the start. And this is really within the lens of career advice. Mm -hmm. The biggest one that I think applies to all of life, and I try to remind myself all the time, is that time is not a limitless commodity. Time is the one treasure that we start off our life with in abundance and every day that we live, we just lose some of it and we can never get it back. And especially when we're younger, we always think, well, there's time for that later on. There's time for me to start that business later on. There's time for me to get my act together. There's time for me to you know, push harder in my career. And then you wake up one day and you realize time was your biggest asset and now it's your biggest enemy. And so within the context, for example, of entrepreneurship, I know a lot of people that say they want, they plan to and want to start a business. Let me tell you, it gets a lot harder in your 30s. It gets a lot harder in your 40s. Once you get married, if you get married, and once you have kids, if you're going to have kids, and you have a mortgage and you have car payments, it makes it more difficult. When you're 21 years old and all your friends are already poor like you and you don't have any money and you're already in debt because of student loans, that's a great time to try to start a company because you have nowhere to go but up. Mm-hmm. And you can keep trying over and over and over again in your 20s. I mean, how many people do you know? How many people do you have on your podcast, Pete, where they didn't really kind of find their career, you know, until they were 28, 29, 30, 31? You know, they tried all these different things and then they kind of got it together as they got closer to 30. Well, if you can have as many swings at the plate as possible in your 20s for the biggest thing you can imagine, that's how you have a lot of success. And just everybody takes time for granted. We always think there's going to be more time to be with the people we love and to get healthier and to do the things professionally we want to do. And nobody ever ends life saying, you know what, I had enough time to do everything I ever wanted to do. Like, show me that person and, you know, that's probably the luckiest person we'll ever get to meet. Mm, That's powerful. Thank you. 
Well, Jason, you tell me, is there anything else you want to make sure we get to cover off before we shift gears and hear some of your fast faves? Just, you know, I would really encourage your listeners, go check out Comparably.com. I would love to get the feedback from folks. It's a product that we really think is going to help a lot of people. If you just want to very quickly be able to see how much you should be getting paid, if you want to see how your coworkers rate your company, if you want to be able to get access to get the absolute best jobs and job offers with doing the least amount of work that you would ever have to do and being able to keep, you know, your identity anonymous. It's a great platform. And I'm an easy guy to find. I'm at Jason Azar on Twitter. My blog is jasonazar.com. You can email me Jason Azar comparably. You'll see a pattern here. Mm-hmm. I'm not that creative. And so I'd love your feedback. Oh, perfect. Thank you. And I hope that you get some good amounts. I'm sure I will. Well, so then could you start us off by sharing a favorite quote? Theodore Roosevelt, man in the arena. It's not the critic who counts, but the person in the arena. My absolute favorite quote of all time. Mm, yes. And how about a favorite study or experiment? Prisoner's experiment. The prisoner dilemma. So the experiment that was done at Stanford University, I think in the late 70s, where students were broken into two groups, prisoners and prison guards. And the students that became prison guards actually became verbally and physically abusive. And it shows the power of context to drive persuasion and human behavior. Mm-hmm. And how about a favorite book? I like The Alchemist. I like hero journeys of somebody going through a path of self-discovery. Okay. And a favorite tool, something that you use often. It's pretty handy. I use Comparably.com. I use Shazam quite a bit. The songs that I hear, um, I open up Shazam and I capture it and I, you know, put that song on my Spotify playlist or I just buy the album outright on iTunes. Mm Mm-hmm. And how about a favorite habit, a personal practice of yours that's been helpful for boosted effectiveness? So I try to start off each day and I ask my team to do the same, writing down on a post-it note, what's the one most important thing I have to get done today? It's in the context of work. And I try to hold myself accountable that if I literally didn't do anything else, but I just got the one single most important thing I had to do get done, and it's typically not something I can get done in 10, 15 minutes. It's going to take more time, energy, thought, planning, concentration. I know that if I do the single most important thing that I have to do every day for my business, that over time, I'm going to succeed. Oh, that's so good. And how about a favorite nugget, something that you share in your writing and working with folks that really seems to get people nodding their heads or taking notes in a hurry? So I've spoke for many years about the power of why. If you are trying to start a business or if you're trying to do anything big in life, it's not the what and the how, but it's why. You need to have a big burning why. It needs to drive and push you and you need to feel connected to it. And if you don't have a big why, And if it's not driving you, you're going to use the what and the how as an excuse for not doing that thing you said you were going to do. And then separately, I think kind of all of self-help boils down to two really powerful questions. There was an article I wrote on Forbes also called 35 Questions That Could Change Your Life. You could check it out. But I think there's two transformational questions that we can all ask ourselves. The first is, what are you pretending not to know? (laughs) And the second is, why am I not doing the things that I know I should be doing? And I think if those two questions are analyzed and looked at and given thought and energy, they're two of the most important things that we can do to improve ourselves as people. That's so good. Thank you. 
Well, Jason, this has been an absolute treat. Thank you for sharing your most precious treasure uh, with us here. It's been a ton of fun. I hope Comparably is just monstrously successful uh, for you and your team. Thank you, Peter. And keep up the great work. The podcast is fantastic. It's a great list of guests. I feel very honored to be included. And you're doing a lot to help a lot of people. So keep doing what you're doing. Huge thanks to Jason for those bits of wisdom and huge thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Isn't that cool that not one person that Jason asked to be a mentor ever said no? Pretty cool. Let that embolden you. It certainly does me. So again, if you want to check out the show notes, the transcripts, the links to things we talked about, you'll find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep76. And if you haven't already, I hope you will push the subscribe button so you don't miss from any of our subsequent guests, such as the very next one, Oh, it's Maura Sweeney. She has a way of saying things so powerfully that indicates that she's on your side and yet is like directly saying stuff that you think might even be unsayable. It takes like a level of courage and candor to go there. She goes there with grace and diplomacy and it was eye-opening. So I hope you catch that one. And until then, peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 